Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On February 14, 1986, a task force from the DEA, FBI, U.S. Customs, U.S. Attorney's Office, and local police met in El Paso, Texas. The top item on the agenda was a fugitive they'd been circling for almost a decade. According to the DEA's 223-page report, Pablo Acosta Villarreal directs his organization from Oinaga with an iron fist and does not tolerate rebellion, either overt or covert. He is a vicious and extremely dangerous person who has little regard for human life if it stands in the way of his operation. The report estimated there were 500 associates of the Acosta organization, including public officials on both sides of the border. Some of them might have been in that very room. It can take an army to bring down a kingpin, but how do you proceed when the whole cavalry is on the kingpin's payroll? I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our final episode on Pablo Acosta Villarreal, the drug trafficker who ruled 200 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border in the 1980s. In the past two episodes, we covered Pablo's rise to power and his decision to work with Colombian cartels to smuggle cocaine across the border. This week, we'll follow the last few months of Pablo's career, leading up to his downfall and death in 1987. You can listen to all of Parcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get back to the story. In August 1986, an unlikely group gathered for breakfast at a restaurant in downtown Oinaga, Mexico. The scar-faced 49-year-old Pablo Acosta, his well-dressed young partner, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, red-bearded U.S. Customs agent David Regula, and a mysterious informant named Gene. Pablo's crew of bodyguards sat at a table nearby, machine guns at the ready. Amato's guards sat at a separate table. There was a coldness between the two drug lords that made the U.S. agent nervous. He feared his cover may have been blown already. But the tension wasn't due to him. Amato didn't even suspect he was meeting with a customs agent and a paid informant. As far as he knew, Gene was a friend of Pablo's who was going to broker some deals for them. The strangest thing about the meeting was that Pablo was up before noon. Pablo's crack addiction was so bad these days that he was only sober enough to function a few hours a day. It was a good thing they'd gathered early, 
or he might have slipped up and revealed the true purpose of the meeting. A couple years ago, Pablo had welcomed Colombian drugs into his city, turning Oinaga into a warehousing base for most of the cocaine that passed through Mexico. He was bringing in at least 50 million U.S. dollars a year, but it wasn't worth the heat. The U.S. was ramping up border security. He'd been ambushed by a gang of unidentified rivals the past January of 1986. Even the local Mexican police were on his back, demanding more and more money to hush up his shootouts. Pablo believed that if the Colombians were gone, everyone would leave him alone and things would go back to the way they were before. To that end, he was sending Gene in to help bust all his cocaine contacts, including Amato. The Guadalajara cartel, led by Amato's uncle, had already used their massive cocaine profits to take control of Mexico's entire western coast, becoming the largest, most powerful drug network the country had ever seen. They were allies for now, but it was only a matter of time until they tried to cut out the middleman and take over Pablo's territory for themselves. Of course, that truth never came up during the breakfast meeting. When they were finished, Regula and Jean got up to leave. As soon as they stepped away, Pablo turned to Amato and said something in a low, steely voice. Regula couldn't understand the rapid-fire Spanish, but Jean could hear their entire conversation perfectly. The DEA had recently found out about one of Pablo and Amato's cocaine stash sites. Amato had taken it upon himself to kidnap and torture six people who knew about the location. At the end of his interrogation, he was sure none of these six men were responsible for the intel leak. He killed them all anyway. Pablo was furious. Amato had killed six innocent people, their own associates, for no reason. Amato replied, it's better for six innocent men to die than for one guilty man to go unpunished. With that in mind, Gene set to work infiltrating Amato's cocaine network. Pablo was no stranger to violence, but he always liked to believe his killings were justified. Self-defense or revenge or punishment when someone had wronged him. He was never gratuitous, not like Amato. Pablo had been mulling about his reputation ever since U.S. newspapers started running stories about him a few months earlier. They'd painted him as a villain with little regard for human life. That, he believed, was just unfair. He was the padrino, the leader of his town's most profitable industry. He used his drug money to do what the government would not, helping the poor, paying hospital bills, creating jobs. No one had bothered to hear this side of his story. In fact, for years, he'd avoided the American media on purpose. He was a wanted fugitive, after all. But if they were going to write about him either way, maybe it was time for a change in strategy. Thus, with the help of Mimi Webb Miller, his American-born neighbor, Pablo Acosta embarked on one of the most ill-advised public relations campaigns in history. It had started in April 1986, around the same time the first unauthorized stories about Pablo appeared. Mimi reached out to a Washington Post journalist who was investigating a group of vigilantes who kidnapped a rapist from the Oinaga jail a few months earlier. Naturally, as the boss of the Oinaga underworld, there were rumors that Pablo was behind it. 
Mimi offered to bring the reporter down to Mexico to ask Pablo for himself. Mimi and the terrified journalist waited on the darkened street for hours before Pablo rolled up in his pickup truck. He told them he'd been drinking tequila and was in no mood to talk. As he sped away, he shouted back at the journalist, I didn't have anything to do with it. I hear four gringos did it. His first interview wasn't a hit, but they gave it a second try. Later that summer, Mimi brought a few FBI agents down to discuss rumors that Libyan terrorists were hiding out in northern Mexico. They hoped the kingpin, who had eyes on every inch of the region, would be able to clear things up. And as long as they met on Mexican soil, outside the FBI's jurisdiction, Pablo was happy to talk. Once again, he didn't know anything useful about the matter, but he made sure to tell them that if there were terrorists hiding out in the Mexican hills, he'd be the first to volunteer to fight them. He loved the United States. It was a beautiful sentiment, but it meant very little coming from one of the DEA's most wanted fugitives. Then in October 1986, an El Paso Herald Post reporter called Mimi and asked if Pablo wanted to talk about the claims being made about him. When U.S. Customs agent David Regula heard about the offer, he warned Pablo that the media storm he was stirring up was a profoundly stupid idea. If anything he said reflected poorly on the Mexican government, his federal protectors could decide it was time to get rid of him. More to the point, Regula's informant Gene was still trying to infiltrate Pablo's cocaine connections. If Pablo drew any negative attention to himself, it could spell the end for his good personal friend Gene, too. But reasoning with Pablo was a lost cause at this point. He told the reporter to come on down to Oinaga. When the reporter drove into town, Mimi led him through a dark courtyard to an apartment building where Pablo stood on the landing, smoking a cigarette. He had a semi-automatic pistol tucked into his belt. The sparse room was littered with machine gun clips and cigarette butts. Pablo cracked open the bottle of brandy the reporter had brought, took a seat, and got down to business. Over the next few hours, Pablo drank, smoked, and ran his mouth freely, just barely hedging the truth about his crimes. He'd killed several people, but it was always self-defense. He was a drug trafficker, but he only dealt in marijuana, never heroin or cocaine. As he said this, he pulled out a bag of cocaine, a box of baking soda, and a spoon. He then launched into a demonstration of how to prepare crack. While he cooked the crack and funneled it into another cigarette, he answered the journalist's questions with increasing abandon. He openly admitted to paying off the police because, as he explained it, if you're a federal policeman, you're never going to make enough money to send your kids to school. You've got to get money from somewhere. I don't blame them. I blame the government. He also confessed that he paid the army to protect his marijuana fields. But, he added, he only grew weed to pay for the local schools. At around midnight, Pablo hopped up and declared he was going to visit a blind girl he was arranging a cornea transplant for. He grabbed an AR-15, launched into a story about the time he'd killed a man with that very AR-15, and then led the baffled reporter out the door. They journeyed to an adobe shack where a young girl named Elva was lying in bed with bandages over her eyes. 
Pablo sat on the edge of the bed, resting his AR-15 on his lap, and explained how Elva, who'd been blind since infancy, would soon be able to see again thanks to his charity. He explained, I don't love money so much as I love people. I do what I do for the people. He even had the reporter take a photo of him and Elva as proof of his good deeds. The townspeople of Oinaga may have been fooled by Pablo's charity, but to the American public, a violent drug lord who helps the blind would hardly come off as a hero. Especially when that violent drug lord admits he's working under the protection of the Mexican federal police. Coming up, we'll look at the catastrophic fallout when Pablo's interview was published a month later. Now, back to the story. While Pablo Acosta was talking to the El Paso Herald Post in October 1986, U.S. Customs agent David Regula was working to bring down the Colombian cartels, as well as Pablo's personal rival, Lupe Arevalo. Pablo still blamed Lupe, without proof, for the ambush that had nearly killed him the previous January. Gene, the informant, had met with Lupe, but he seemed to suspect he was being set up, and he quickly backed off. Their plan to bust him wasn't going to happen, but Pablo wouldn't let up on his obsessive revenge quest, and he was getting surly. So in a last-ditch effort, Regula went to the federal police commander in Ciudad Juarez, right across the border from El Paso, to see if he'd help arrest Lupe Arevalo in Mexico. The commander, Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni, was as crooked as any cop in Mexico. But a few years back, he cracked down and arrested a high-profile drug lord who'd kidnapped an American photographer, so Regula hoped the police chief could be persuaded to arrest a criminal once again. Instead, Calderoni simply told the American agent that Lupe Arevalo had protection, and there was nothing he could do. Pablo didn't take the news well. He called Gene the informant at his El Paso home and accused him of trying to screw him over. The two men threatened to kill each other, and Pablo challenged Gene, you can come down here and we'll see how big of a badass you are. Hoping to smooth things over, Mimi set up a meeting between Pablo, Gene, and David Regula at her ranch. Pablo arrived an hour late with four machine gun-wielding guards. The gunmen did a thorough search of the house, then took seats on the patio, keeping an eye on the perimeter. Only then would Pablo enter the premises. Pablo and Jean sat down and talked through their differences. David Regula couldn't follow the Spanish. He kept his eyes on Pedro, Pablo's ever-present nephew, who was standing guard silently with his AR-15 pointed to the ground. After half an hour of discussion, Pablo stood up and pulled Jean and Regula into a hug. With genuine joy, he said, God, it's good to see you both again. Pablo snapped his fingers and Pedro produced a pack of crack-laced cigarettes. As Pablo lit up, Regula briefed him on the lack of progress with both Lupe Arevalo and the Colombians. Regula's superiors were getting impatient and they needed some useful intel now or their cooperation was over. Pablo was quiet for a moment. He had a faraway look in his eyes as he took another drag from his crack-laced Marlboro. After a moment of thought, he told Regula that it was time for him to retire. He'd had a good career, 
and made more money than he could ever need. But he was 49 years old, and he was ready to wrap things up. Soon, he was going to call up all his regular customers and sell off his remaining stockpiles of marijuana. He promised to tell Regula in advance so that customs could arrest them all when they made it across the border. Pablo didn't ask for anything in return. Strange as it was, the proposal seemed genuine. He promised to set up the deals as soon as possible. As they drove back across the interstate to El Paso that night, Regula mused to Jean, I think Pablo knows he's going to die soon. It was a look in his eyes. He just looks like he knows he's not going to live long. If it weren't for the crack, Pablo could have been at the top of his game. His drug operation was as successful as ever, but he was no longer up to the task of running it. Most of his associates were already jumping ship. At this point, there were only two options. Give up and go peacefully, or wait for someone to dethrone him by force. But even Pablo may not have guessed exactly how soon the end would come. Just weeks after that meeting, on December 3, 1986, the El Paso Herald Post published their interview with Pablo. The interview where he'd openly admitted to drug smuggling, multiple murders, and bankrolling the federal police and military. Three days after the article appeared, orders came down from the Attorney General in Mexico City. Guillermo González Calderoni, the federal police commander in Ciudad Juárez, had been given jurisdiction over Oinaga. He was told to find Pablo Acosta and bring him in dead or alive. No doubt, Pablo's interview was what instigated the crackdown. The police couldn't afford to work with a drug lord who'd implicated them in front of the American press. But there was another factor at play. According to the DEA, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, Pablo's own protege and partner, paid Commander Calderoni $1 million to assassinate Pablo Acosta. It's not clear exactly when this agreement was made, but assuming the DEA's intel is correct, it's likely that one or both of the men saw the Herald Post article as the perfect excuse to bring Pablo down. As soon as he got confirmation from the Capitol, Commander Calderoni and a squad of patrolmen rushed to Oinaga. But by the time they got there, Pablo was already gone. Police set up roadblocks and searched the city for an entire week. But no one knew where the drug lord had disappeared to. Not even Pablo's wife, who was still at their home in downtown Oinaga. After the first week, the manhunt was expanded nationwide. But Mexico covers 760,000 square miles. And without any leads, the search was hopeless. There was no reason to suspect their target was hiding just 400 miles south at a hotel in Torreon. Pablo had fled with at least two of his closest confidants. Pedro, the nephew who'd been by his side since he first took over the plaza, and Amado, who by all appearances had almost as much to lose as Pablo did. Some other associates might have been with them, but most of the crew was now scattered to the wind. Somehow, Pablo still thought he could smooth things over and return to Oinaga in due time. He kept in contact with David Regula and even managed to help Customs bust a small cocaine shipment he'd heard was coming across the border, a show of good faith to keep the Americans on his side. 
Pablo told Gene the informant that he was reaching out to his federal contacts for help. He'd even paid $100,000 as a down payment to settle the matter. Amato, who was right there with him, never mentioned that he'd paid 10 times as much to ensure Pablo's death. By the end of January 1987, after two months, the search for Pablo had made no progress. But the first break in the case came sometime in February. Pablo, Pedro, and Amato had gone to a party at a house near their hideout. The fugitives had a fine time at the party, drinking and smoking crack to excess. At some point during the night, Pedro left by himself to go look for some heroin. He never returned. Pablo spent the morning pacing around his hotel room, hyped up from the crack, with no idea what had happened to his fugitive nephew. If anything happened to him now, it would be Pablo's fault. Finally, at about 11 a.m., he got a call from Pedro. He didn't have any heroin connections in Torreon, so he'd spent all night driving the 400 miles back to Oinaga. Pablo told Pedro to get out of Oinaga immediately. The town was still crawling with police, and if they caught Pedro, they'd probably torture him to death. But it was too late. On his way out of town, Pedro was pulled over and taken to the federal police headquarters. By the next morning, he was dead. The police claim he died of a heart attack, but an American officer who saw photos of the body said he had been beaten to death, his skull entirely caved in. The news of Pedro's death eventually traveled to Pablo. For the first time, he grasped the severity of the situation. There was no going back to Oinaga. But there was no staying put either. Pablo guessed that Pedro might have given up their location during the interrogation, and he was right. Commander Calderoni was on his way to Torreon at that very moment. By the time the police arrived at the hotel, Pablo had once again vanished. There was a local rumor, never proven, that after his escape from Torreon, Pablo called Calderoni and challenged him to a one-on-one -on -one duel. Calderoni just laughed. Whether that rumor was true or not, Pablo had decided it was time to stop running. Now, he was ready for a fight. By early March 1987, the fugitives had journeyed north through 400 miles of the Mexican desert and set up camp in Santa Elena, a small village along the Rio Grande not far from Oinaga. Pablo was known to use the village as a smuggling checkpoint. He even owned a house there. It was one of the most obvious places he could have hidden, but the location had a big advantage. It was nearly impossible to ambush. Since the village was situated along the Rio Grande, the natural border, Mexican police couldn't approach from the north without crossing into U.S. jurisdiction. From the south, the village was surrounded by massive 1,800-foot cliffs. That left only one point of entry a narrow valley between the river and the cliffs. Pablo, the benevolent padrino, had arrived in Santa Elena with duffel bags full of cash, and he made sure the village's 300 impoverished residents had everything they wanted. If, or rather when, the police found him, someone who lived along the valley would surely call and give him a heads up. Almost immediately, Pablo started recruiting gunmen for the showdown. There was no chance he'd surrender quietly, not after what they did to Pedro. He had at least a dozen armed guards surrounding his house at all times, 
including two of his nephews, Pedro's half-brothers. As a longtime stash house, the little adobe hut was already battle-ready. Years ago, he'd fortified the small, mud-walled home with heavy metal doors and thick wooden shutters. He kept a full artillery of machine guns in the stone shed out back. He sent his men on supply runs for any other necessities, ammunition, cigarettes, cocaine, and lumber to repair the leaky roof of the village's three-room school. He was the padrino through and through. Quiet Santa Elena soon became a non-stop raging fiesta. Pablo's crew, at this point, consisted of a couple dozen rowdy nephews, cousins, and local boys, and they kept their spirits up with street parties so loud they could be heard across the river. Pablo mostly spent his time inside, smoking crack. The noise didn't bother him. He wasn't trying to hide anymore, not really. But he was in no mood to join in. He was becoming seriously ill, probably from the constant drug use. But leaving the village to go see a doctor wasn't an option. When Mimi Webb Miller came down to visit him, he told her he didn't think he was going to live another two weeks. Either he'd die from whatever illness he'd been stricken with, or he'd be killed by the police. It was only a few weeks before U.S. agents across the river figured out who was causing the ruckus in Santa Elena. But they didn't share the news. As far as they knew, the Mexican police were still in Pablo's pocket. Meanwhile, Commander Calderoni was piecing together Pablo's location by tapping the phones of all of his known friends and associates. He'd brought in two people for questioning and coerced them into revealing where Pablo was, down to exactly which house in the village was his. But Calderoni quickly understood why Pablo had chosen Santa Elena. There was only one way to get into the village without being seen. They'd have to fly in from the U.S. side of the river, where Pablo's network of informants didn't reach. But for that, he'd need American cooperation. Calderoni made a call to Matt Perez, the lead FBI agent in El Paso, Texas. After 10 years of stymieing every American effort to capture Pablo Acosta, the Mexican federal police were ready to turn the table. Agent Perez agreed in a heartbeat. The FBI would help Calderoni in whatever way necessary. This was officially an international investigation. Up next, we'll return to the manhunt for international fugitive Pablo Acosta. Now back to the story. In January of 1981, the Mexican Federal Police appointed Pablo Acosta Villarreal to oversee the narcotics trade in Oinaga, Mexico. With their protection, he was untouchable by prosecutors, rivals, or the American FBI. Six years later, the Mexican Federal Police commander led a nationwide manhunt to capture Pablo Acosta possibly working on a million-dollar kill contract paid to him by Pablo's right-hand man. For help with this task, he recruited the FBI. On the morning of April 24, 1987, 18 FBI agents, led by Agent Matt Perez, met at an Army base in El Paso, Texas, just before dawn. None of them knew what they were there for. They'd only been told to report for duty at 6 a.m., 
Fifteen miles south, 17 Mexican federal agents were gathered around two helicopters at the Juarez International Airport, receiving their final instructions from Commander Calderoni. They would follow an FBI helicopter across the border into the mountains of Big Bend National Park. When the moment came, the two Mexican helicopters would fly across the river into Santa Elena, take control of the village's 300 residents, and capture Pablo Acosta. The FBI agents would block the river from the U.S. side in case the fugitive tried to flee. Standing next to Calderoni was the unknown Acosta associate who'd been forced to give up the drug lord's location. He'd be riding next to Calderoni in handcuffs to point out which house Pablo was hiding in. Calderoni's final instructions were, I want Pablo Acosta taken alive, but not if your safety is jeopardized. That evening, in Santa Elena, another fiesta was raging outside Pablo's adobe house. It was the birthday of Pablo's nephew and bodyguard, Fidel, and a few dozen men had gathered to crack beers and roast a calf over the fire pit. Pablo was not among them. He was strolling back from the river with his dog, a mutt he'd recently struck up a kinship with. As he passed, some of the partiers called for Pablo to join them, but he just waved and continued toward his house. At that moment, two red and blue federal police choppers soared over the river and circled low over the village. The men in the street scattered. As one of the helicopters lowered, Pablo recognized the snitch handcuffed next to Calderoni, pointing out his house. He shouted up at him, traitor, and ran in through the adobe hut's solid metal front door. Agents in plain clothes and bulletproof vests filed out of the helicopters, charging the streets with machine guns at the ready. They herded every man they saw into a street a block away and forced them to lie down on the ground. A few officers knocked on doors, grabbing any men of gun-bearing age and making them lie down with the others. Women and children were warned to stay inside and stay low. Pablo shut all the metal shutters on his windows, pulled on a bulletproof vest, and jammed a clip into his semi-automatic rifle. Only two others had made it inside with him, his nephew Fidel, and a man from Oinaga named Jesus, who'd only been there to deliver some money. A bullhorn blared through the shuttered windows. This is Comandante Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni of the Federal Judicial Police. We have you surrounded, Pablo. Give up. Pablo told the other two men they could surrender if they wanted to. Fighting back was hopeless. But he wasn't gonna let the police take him alive. Better to go out in a blaze of glory. Fidel and Jesus thought for a moment. They were in it now. They wouldn't abandon him. They grabbed rifles and pointed them through the slits in the windows. Pablo opened fire, and so did the federal agents. An agent kicked open the front door. Pablo fired a burst, knocking him down, and ducked behind the door of the back bedroom. The wounded agent squeezed his trigger on reflex, firing a dozen rounds through the bedroom door. Then the kitchen door burst open. Fidel was the only one in the room. He threw his hands up and the agents pulled him outside. Pablo and Jesus kept firing from the back bedroom. The walls were lined with boxes full of ammunition. The firefight went on for nearly half an hour and then Calderoni ordered his men to stop shooting. Moments later, Pablo stopped too. 
Calderoni shouted through his bullhorn, Pablo, you don't have a chance. Come out with your hands up. Pablo answered with another spray of gunfire. It went on like that for over an hour. The sun went down and the streets went dark. The officers threw tear gas through the torn up windows and doors, but the gunfire didn't let up. They rammed a pickup truck into the side of the house, but the thick mud brick walls held firm. Then they drenched the thatched roof with gasoline and tossed a torch. The entire roof caught fire, glowing in the darkness. The stores of ammunition inside caught fire too and exploded in a string of rapid pops. Jesus came running out of the house with his hands up. The bullets kept popping for a few minutes and then slowly they stopped. Smoke and flames engulfed the house. Jesus told Commander Calderoni he thought Pablo was dead. One of the police agents shoved his gun through the window shutter and peered inside. In the light of the flames, Pablo was propped up on the bed, motionless, clutching a pistol in one hand and a semi-automatic rifle in the other. Hundreds of bullet shells littered the floor around him. He had only been hit by one fatal bullet, right in the back of the head. Pablo's body was dragged out to Commander Calderoni's helicopter and placed on the floor by the passenger's seat amid a pile of garbage and discarded orange peels from the strike team's lunches. Thanks to the police's bulletproof vests and the sturdy mud walls of the surrounding homes, there were no other casualties. Only one police officer was seriously wounded. Fidel and Jesus were hogtied and tossed in the back of a pickup truck Calderoni commandeered from a neighbor. They were driven back to the federal police headquarters in Ciudad Juarez. Calderoni wanted to arrest every one of the village men they detained in the street, but the FBI told him the men couldn't be flown back through U.S. territory since they hadn't committed any crimes in the U.S. or in Mexico, for that matter. Calderoni relented and let the captives go. By the next morning, the scorched, bullet-riddled adobe house was the only sign that the battle had ever happened. When Pablo Acosta's funeral was held on April 28, 1987, over a thousand people lined up at the cemetery to pay their respects. As the grievers took their last looks at the fallen drug lord, Norteño bands played ballads in his honor. One song went, Gone is Pablito, friend of the poor, killed by the government in a world that shows no mercy for people like that. Pablo, and many of the locals had always justified his crimes by musing that things could be much worse if someone else were in control of the drug trade. Those suspicions proved to be correct. After Pablo's death, his operation kept running under the control of Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Amado shifted his headquarters west to Ciudad Juarez, and subsumed the entire north-central corridor into the Guadalajara cartel's now nationwide smuggling network. Soon after that, the leader of the Guadalajara cartel, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, decided to divide their massive trade into several regional zones. The operation in the north-central Chihuahua region, now controlled by Amado, became known as the Juarez Cartel. 
Felix Gallardo intended to oversee the entire operation, but his control diminished when he was arrested in April 1989. By 1993, the regional cartels had become completely separate organizations, independent of any central leader. Amado Carrillo Fuentes now answered to no one. The Juarez cartel ushered in an unprecedented era of corruption and violence. In less than 10 years, Amado and his associates were responsible for over 400 murders. It's estimated that he paid over 500 million U.S. dollars a year for federal protection, 500 times the figure Pablo had paid to Oinaga officials. Amado succeeded by learning from Pablo's failures. Instead of warring with other traffickers, he brokered deals with them, connecting potential rivals into his own ever more powerful network. Instead of courting publicity, he kept an extremely low profile, even using plastic surgery to change his appearance whenever his face became too recognizable. In 1997, Amato abruptly died during one of these plastic surgery procedures, leaving his brother Vicente in control of the Juarez cartel. In the late 80s and early 90s, the FBI collected evidence of Commander Calderoni's long-standing ties to drug traffickers, including Amato. They tried to use this evidence to pressure him into arresting a high-profile drug lord. But when Mexican officials got wind that Calderoni was talking to the FBI, they immediately ordered his arrest, strangely, for corruption and torturing prisoners. He fled to Texas, where he was shot to death by an unknown assailant in 2003. The Juarez cartel still controls drug trafficking along Mexico's central corridor. For the past two decades, their bitter rivalry with the western Sinaloa cartel has turned Ciudad Juarez into an epicenter of violence. In 2009, Juarez had more murders per capita than any other city in the world. We'll never know how the Mexican crime world might be different if Pablo Acosta hadn't allowed cocaine into Oinaga, or if he'd stepped down peacefully given up all his marijuana contacts, and left his cocaine operation to Amato, as he'd planned to do. In either case, the end result may have been exactly the same. Oinaga, like every other patch of the border, would be swallowed up by a more powerful and violent cartel in due time. For all his outlaw bandit swagger and death-defying shootouts, Pablo was only a small piece in a much larger picture of government corruption, violence, and epidemic drug abuse. It might be poetic justice that the legendary drug lord went out the way he did, undone by his addiction, killed by crooked officials, the victim of a broken system he'd helped create. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time.
Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.